But today, what we're going to do is we're going to continue in John. We're in John chapter 17. Uh, You'll keep me lifted. One of the things that sometimes we're all guilty of doing is underestimating the true humanity of Jesus Christ. Every now and then we find ourselves torn between a couple of things, uh, forgetting that he was really human, that he's not just playing for our sake. Like, look, it said he's, he's tired. He's not really tired. He's just doing that to make us feel good. Now, when Jesus was here, he was really tired. The other thing is Jesus was really a boy. Like he really had to be taught how to walk. You know, he didn't really have to be taught. He just let his mom do that just so he could. No, he really had to learn how to walk. Um, the Lord Jesus probably tripped. You know, he didn't really trip. He saw it there. He just, you know, don't want us to get an inferiority complex. Now nah, he probably really tripped. One such thing reminds me that Jesus really had passions. He really had a variety of things that got him amped versus other things that probably moved him to different degrees. Sort of think about Jesus as just this one steady, normalized. He's always excited or he's always not excited. He doesn't vary because, after all, like that would be too human. Well, the day we get to a place where we're in the center of a prayer where the Lord Jesus reveals his passions... Uh, if you listen to somebody's prayer, it can tell you what mode they're in or what their passions are. Most of us make a beeline to what we want because those are our passions. We spend very little time. Now, when you're overburdened with guilt, sometimes you spend a lot of time in confession because at that time, forgiveness is your passion, so you want forgiveness. Well, today we get to a section where the Lord Jesus actually brought me personally some comfort should bring all of us some comfort as he reveals that he's got passions. He's not indifferent about these things. This isn't something that, you know, he sort of likes, but there's other things he likes more. This rates high on the order of Jesus Christ's passions. We're in chapter 17, and the whole chapter is uh, at the tail end of him spending a very intimate time with his disciples. And so he's in what we know, what most people have known as the high priestly prayer. We know that that may not be the, uh, the best way to categorize this prayer. But we do know Jesus Christ begins to pray for himself, then pray for the people that he's been with. And now look today, verse 20. I'm going to read it, verse 20 to 26. He even broadens it somewhat to even include us. Verse 20 of chapter 17 says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the 11 that was with him. But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perf perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I want you to hear a actual human praying those words. I want you to envision the emotion of this prayer. Because what we see here is though this this pericope, as they call it, this section of scripture is pregnant with a lot of theology. And that was part of my trouble. I said we're not in an age where people like to hear long discourses on theology that just seems to hover over top. I was like, Lord, how will the theology here drive us to leave out of here impacted and impressed with the Lord Jesus and at the same time draw comfort from it since that's what we come here for. We've been beat up all week and then we come here to see how what God has spoken once for all will help us to continue to press forward, pressing toward the prize. So the first thing we see here is that in verse 20, Jesus Christ displays that he has a devotion to us. Now, the us is believers in this contemporary setting. Us is the you and the me. Because here is one thing for Jesus to pray for the people that are right in front of him. It's another thing for Jesus to be conscious beyond the people that he's into, beyond the people that he's out with, to begin to think beyond that immediate context all the way down to 2007 and to think about you and me. Not you and me individualistically, but he says, listen, I want to pray not just for these, my inner circle that I'm sitting around, but I want to pray for all those who will believe in me through their word. He sits here and he broadens the scope and he limits the scope. I don't want to get us geeked too much because there may be somebody in here that can't lay claim to the beauty of his devotion toward them because he broadens it to say, I don't want to just talk about these. I want to talk about others. But he limits it because there's others who believe in me. You can't reject Jesus Christ and then lay claim to his promises or lay claim to his comforts. That's what the world does. I don't want Jesus, but I do want heaven. I don't want Jesus, but I do want forgiveness. I don't want Jesus, but I do want prosperity. So he says, no, no, no. Lord, I want to pray right now for people who are not in this room, but who will come. And I want to pray for them who will believe in me. That's good to me because it shows that this is a man who's got a devotion for people, people like us. Now, I needed that. We're going through John. You you can't pick your message. You can't be like, man, I really think people need to hear on. And then you hope that when you get to a passage, one, it's going to first speak to you. Second, that it's going to speak to others because we're in a day where people want what's practical. So I'm like, man, Lord, it was good to come across this this week to find out that if there's nothing else practical that you get from this today, it's you can lay claim to the fact that Jesus thought about us even when right at the time where he was, you would think he should just be thinking about him and his squad. He's only moments away from going to the cross. You would think he would spend his time focusing on himself. But here we have John recording. He says, I don't just pray for these. I pray for those who will come. This is good because it means that though we were out of sight, we were not out of mind. 
And he demonstrates that he's got a confidence that what he started is going to continue. You know, Philippians, uh, a brother was asking me about Philippians 1, 8, where it says, he that began the good work in you is faithful to finish it. It's this confidence that, yo, I'm not talking about all of the, 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 the inner workings, but you just know this. When God starts it, he's faithful to complete it. The Lord Jesus sits here and he demonstrates a similar confidence by saying, Lord, I just thank you for all the people that's going to come. He doesn't think, I hope they come. He says, I'm just praying right now because they're going to come. This goes to show you that salvation is not guesswork for Jesus Christ, but it's a plan that's unfolding. And he demonstrates a care for those. Again, don't miss that. He's not just, he's not a politician just giving blanket promises, but really divorced from any real care. You meet a politician, how you doing? Yo, remember what you said? You wanted, you didn't want me left behind in my education. I did? Oh yeah, I did. But Jesus Christ says, remember what you prayed the Lord? I sure do. I prayed for you that you who would come to believe in me. All the things I prayed for my inner squad that I washed their feet, I loved them. I said, Father, you know I love them. I prayed that for you too. Don't miss that. He's got a devotion for us. This is a demonstration that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, Christ prayed for us. You know, this was used in the Bible to encourage people. People who were struggling because there was always a group of religious folk that made people feel like they didn't deserve God as much as other people. The Judaizers were one such people. Jews who thought they had one up on Gentiles. You know, Gentiles were considered dogs. Gentiles were considered those who even Paul said, you who were once far away have been brought near. Well, every now and then Paul had to write and remind Gentiles, yo, you who were enemies, that, that doesn't mean anything. Don't let that, don't let that discourage you. While you were enemies, Christ died for you. Today, it's, we, we haven't come yet. Those of us didn't believe that we'll believe. Before we believed, he prayed for us. This ought to show you that he has some devotion toward you. Eight, Romans 8.34 says this. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Once again, this idea that just his prayer for you is an, ought to rock you. Because it says, who condemns? Wait, wait, are you around? You feel condemned? Don't. He intercedes for you. He hit his knees for you. You know how it is. We pray for people we like. The Lord Jesus prayed for people who would be the very reason why he had to go to the cross. Don't miss that this morning. For some of us, you, we never want to be his enemy. So you don't take comfort in him praying for his enemy. But for those of us that know we were his enemy. Hebrews 7.25. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. A Christ who prays for his people means we were on his heart. Even in this prayer. But not only do we see his devotion to us. We see that he has a desire for us. Verse 21 to 23 says this. This is my prayer for those who will believe that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I think one of the key things here is easily you see this and you say, oh, this is about unity. But I don't know if unity captures fully everything that this is meant to even rock us with. Oneness may be a good synonym because he's going to talk more about less about us being unified by our behavior. That will be an implication. But he's going to be basically praying out for us the theology of unity, which is going to then spark our preserving the unity of the faith in our, as a response to it being just the heart of Jesus Christ. Once again, I want you to hear this as a prayer of a person. Can you imagine if you hear somebody praying, like they're laboring and they're praying for a job, and you over here and you hear, man, they need a job. And so you find yourself saying, yo, I couldn't help but overhearing you crying out for a job. Well, yo, my father owns a company. Wait, you overhear it and you tune into their prayer and you want to see how can you see their prayer realized. Well, God's people are supposed to listen in on this prayer. And if Jesus Christ is crying out for it, we ought to want to see it realized. But let's see what he cries out first. He cries out not that we would act unified, but that we would be unified or that we would be one. But he explains that this oneness is just like the fathers in me, I in you, Jesus is saying to his father, that they may be in us. Christ wanted a people who would bear a fundamental mark of the Godhead. Once again, this is a beautiful thing simply because what we are made to be is a reflector of who God is. So if it's true about God in some way, unless it's what we call incommunicable, he can't let you share in it. In some way, we're supposed to be able to see it manifest in us is oneness. A passion for Jesus Christ, a passion for God, thereby when God becomes a human, that's one of those things that he's not sort of likes, he really likes, oneness. Well, he says here, I want them to be one like the Godhead is. That's the first thing. If it's a fundamental mark of God, you should be able to see it before there was a human. And the beauty of that is if we reflect it, that means we're going to see it, but we get it because we imitate him. The Godhead, three and one. Now, if you're not a Trinitarian, you won't be able to do anything with a lot of these passages, which is why we are a Trinitarian church that believes that Jesus Christ and the Father are one, but they're not the same, which is good for us, simply because we don't have to all be the same to be one. He says, yo... Father, like you and me, the reason why I say oneness rather than unity before we get to unity is because oneness has this idea of us being in something together, not just walking in agreement with something. He doesn't just start with us walking in agreement. You want to do it? Yeah, you want to do it? Okay. He first has to place us into something. He says, Father, like you're in me and like I'm in you, may they be in us. There's only one sphere where oneness is fundamental to identity. That's in the Godhead. So before there was any, it was three persons who were one with each other, but they were in this connection, this communion. 
And so he's sitting up here saying, Dag, Lord, I want them to be in on this banger thing. Now, that may not rock us because we don't even understand what it means to be in something. You don't talk about being in something. But God, the, as soon as he makes a creation, what does he do? Establish marriage as a reflection of what God is doing. And what did he say? The two shall become one. What is the symbol of oneness going into one another? He says, come on, man. I want them to understand that this is a passion of Christ. This is his passion. Before we get to how we walk it out, let's just know what, what it stems from. It just stems from him liking this thing called oneness. This idea of people walking in some sort of union together and not just all over the place, coming together occasionally. We're going to see how everything follows this pattern. And God gets, dis, he gets, he gets disengaged where oneness isn't. And he doesn't like all oneness. Oneness loses its grip in God's eyes when he ceases to benefit from the oneness. Perfect case is Tower of Babel. One people, one language, they had one plan, and God steps in and says, Dang, these people are one. Nothing will stop them. That's another practical application of oneness. Once you're one, nothing can stop what people who are one put their minds to do. But God steps in and smashes oneness that's not oneness achieving his goals. Now, look what Jesus Christ says about what he wants oneness to do. Father, I want oneness, first of all, to take after the oneness that's in us, you and me, me and you. I want them to be in us. Then he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now God has every reason to honor this prayer and to empower this oneness because God is pro what Jesus wants to happen through the oneness. And the idea here is that it can't happen without it. The re now, now, issues of salvation are funny because there's the human responsibility and there's divine responsibility. Human responsibility, often, sometimes we feel like it doesn't really matter because divine responsibility trumps us. But the idea here is you never see one without the, well, you rarely see one without the other in the Bible. And so here God is coming and God is saying, yo, I'm going to empower oneness that wants to put me on display. I want to empower oneness that's going to showcase that Jesus Christ is the one that I put on the earth as a solution to sin. So when Jesus Christ asked for it, God is saying, yeah, I'm with it. So we look here and we see as a passion, if God makes that a prerequisite, he wasn't going to leave that up to us. So you know what he does for us? He came up with this thing called baptism. Baptism is where God places all of us in each other. And now that's the sphere where we're in the right sphere where oneness can even be empowered. Now we're going to see how we're going to respond to that oneness soon. Uh, John 14 says this. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is me. Jesus' idea here is, let me tell you what it means for you to be in God and God to be in me and you to be in us. In other words, you to join our kind of union. It's where not only does God place you in the sphere where it happens, that's in a vital connection in, in, in union with me. 
But it's where God the Father lives out his desires through the vehicle. Now, through me, Jesus always came, though he's fully God, and said, I'm not here to just do what I come up with. I'm here to be the instrument through which God the Father does what he wants. Jesus Christ says, now it's my turn to join in that. Used to be a time when I didn't do my own thing. But now my will will be lived out through an agent called my people, the people who we've baptized into this oneness. Now you've got the father and the son being living out their will through people like you and me as one. Now, again, this doesn't rock you unless you just like God and the, the God, the father and God, the son to get their way. You know, like some parents just want their kids to get their way in order to get on your nerves. Like, dang, I wish they slap them or something. Like, you do think that. Well, in our culture, slapping is permissible. As long as you don't, you know what I'm saying, damage nothing. Some of y'all are like, see, I knew it. I could just tell from his tone. But you see, the Bible makes it clear that sometimes there are people you don't want to get their way. Sometimes there's people you, the world doesn't want God to get his way. God's way imposes on us. Well, for the reader of Scripture, you know when God is doing something because you want God to get his way. Well, God the, Father, God the Father wanted to get his way, and so he had to raise Jesus Christ to do it because the first Adam was a broke vessel. After he sinned, he sinned and therefore failed to allow God the Father to, well, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, to have their way with him and with the first man or woman. He chooses Abram and says, now I'll do it through a nation or through a people where I'll get my way through them. They mess up. Then God says, ah, I got a son I'll send and I'll get my way through him. And Jesus Christ came on earth and he always talked about his perfect obedience. He was like, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not the dead monkey on the line. When God starts shooting his will through, when God starts shooting his desires through, I'm always there to fulfill it. Well, that's what oneness with God means. It means that you now have been placed in him and he sees you as the one through whom he's going to live out his desires His desires culminate, of course, in redemptive history in the cross. We always say, send me, Lord, use me. Well, for him to do that, he would have to place you in him, place you in the son, and then live it out through you. He doesn't just hire you to come on the side and start doing stuff. We're talking about oneness today. This oneness is objective before you live it out. It's what Jesus paid for. This oneness is observable simply because it was supposed to be something you lived out because this is what he says. I want them to be in us and I want them to be one with us and with each other so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory, verse 22, that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Once again, hear a man praying, concerned about the legacy that he's living. Hear a person who's praying, who knows he's, this isn't like us where we don't know when we're going. This is a man who knew he was about to go. Listen to his prayer. 
He's, he cares about a legacy. He cares about tomorrow. You know us, we don't really care about tomorrow. We think tomorrow, like, tomorrow could take care of itself. We use that, con- that verse out of context. No savings. I'm even guilty of this. No savings. We don't take out life insurance till it's too late. All kinds of stuff we do too late. This is a man who's got legacy on his mind. So based on his legacy, Jesus, he cares that what he came to spark continues. You know, for some people, they just care about, yo, as long as I'm good. We say that about a certain generation. They got theirs, and they're not even thinking about the fact that when they go, somebody's coming behind them. The Lord Jesus has that on his mind, which is why he has you on his mind, me on his mind. We're a part of his legacy, what he's doing. And he wants it to look exactly like it looked when he was doing it. So this is like you can't improve on the Lord Jesus, though. See, it's one thing. My kids could do it better than me. Like when I come and they'll do it better than me. You can't improve on him. And so he's saying, Dad, Lord, I want it to be exactly like, you know, the way you hooked it up with me and you, where you lived out your way through me because of our oneness. Now, I want to create a people who will be one in us. That's the objective part. But I want them to now live according to that oneness theology. Now, can't say oneness theology. <laughs> Anybody familiar with oneness theology? All right. That means that God is not triune. So let me say that different. The theology of people being unified or believers being one. He says, I want to see that lived out in such a way that it impacts a world. So it is observable. So he said, I gave them my glory so that they may be one. Now, we're in a day where fashion is just going off the chain. I mean, I remember back in the day we were looking at Chuck Taylors, you know what I'm saying, little Converse with the star on it that's flimsy. You know what I'm saying? I remember days when they were like $15. And, I, like, actually, I, like, I'm living a little bit. I've seen a couple things. Like, I talk about, yeah, man, I remember when jeans, like, were like $25, and that was a good pair. You know what I'm saying? I remember when it was 35 and I was like, y'all starting to trip. I remember when they were 45 I'm like, this is getting out of hand. And I'm still right there on the 40 45, like, this is out of hand. Let me get that. Now you're looking for the two for 45s. You know what I'm saying? Go to kick so you get two for 45 or something, right? But then you go over, and now they just, like, starting to get to the point where jeans are up to, I mean, upwards of $1,000. Now, when you examine them, you do peep that they were cut above. <laughs> you know, like, sometimes you say, it's the same thing, Right? But now it is starting to be a difference. The elaborate embroidery and some of the stitching. And in fact, they now now where fashion is doing their thing, they're coming up with an excellent knockoff sphere. That's where I stay, right? That's where you go over the bridge. Well, I haven't gone over the bridge, but there's other places like going over the bridge. And you find a place that has stuff that looks almost the same, right? And you like, you want to get it because... It doesn't have the same glory, but it's close enough. Now, a lot of times, the actual company sends stuff that doesn't have the same glory to those people. So, like, Tim has a B-rate Tim, and they'll be like, ah, send those to our outlet. They don't have the glory of the ones that are A-class. Even certain, certain, um, now, certain companies will not send a B anything. They only send A because they only want 
a certain type of glory, right? Well, Jesus Christ is one of those types. He doesn't want anything inferior. So he says, I had to give them my glory so they'd be one the way that you know, the one that we demand, the oneness that we demand, that is essential for carrying out that you getting your way, Father, me and you getting our way through them. They needed my glory so that we'll all be one. Don't, you don't want to be second rate in the kingdom. You don't want to be second class. You ever go to a buffet at the end, like right when they're cleaning up? And you're like, but yo, where the shrimp? No more shrimp. But I'm like, we're paying the same thing, but I'm getting less. Well, at least give me the, oh, none of those either. Well, what do you have? And they'll be like, some ice cream over there, some oranges over there. And you're like, yo, I feel like, why am I paying the same thing? Jesus says, I gave them my glory so that they'd be one. Now, this is difficult because there's several ways. How do you know that that's the glory he's talking about? Well, he can't give them his resurrection body glory. Uh, uh, some say, well, when he gave them their glory, he gave them glory as it is received through the cross. In the Bible, Jesus say, I'm about to be crucified. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm about to be glorified. But he means he's about to be crucified. So another thing you ought to get from this is that giving them his glory meant I'm going to put them on the same path as I was on so that they ultimately will receive the same kind of glory I'm going to receive. That's ridiculous. Most of us, we duck the cross. We dodge sufferings. Jesus Christ says, I'm going to give you the road to glory. I will both give you the the glory of being identified with me in both the power of my resurrection and the fellowship of my suffering, but you got to take both. He says, I gave him my glory. And he's talking as though it's good as happened. He says here, I am them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Again, keep looking, y'all. We're talking about a man's prayer. What are you doing all mushy the night before you're about to go through the worst situation of your life? What are you doing thinking about 2007 believers who need to share in what you and your disciples did? Some of the times y'all had. This just goes to show you. If there's anything you walk away here, devotion to even us who would believe before we believed. He's got a desire for us that we'd be one. Now, we said it's objective. He prayed that there would be an entity that was one, not a bunch of franchises. The church is not a bunch of franchises. Where you go and, yo, can I get the Sunday for 69? Oh, no, that's not us. Yo, but around my way, y'all running sales Sunday. Yeah, but that's the one around your way. But this says McDonald's, doesn't it? He says, nah, all one. That's objective. It's observable. When you walk it out, 
The world gets impacted by the growth of such a diversity. If anybody was to come in here right now and peep God's influence and peep how he takes all that are different, yet we're rallied around uh, our oneness in him, they would marvel at what is this thing that could bridge so many gaps. It's also obligatory. I had to keep the O's. I know it's a bug word. It didn't fit with it. Observable, objective, obligatory. But bear with me. It is something that we've got to do. He doesn't tell us to do it in here. There's no imperative to be one in this context or in this portion. He just prays it aloud, and it's assumed by when he says the world has to be impacted that we ought to live it out. Real quick, just turn over to Ephesians. Ephesians 4. And I'm almost finished. Can't believe it. This concept of oneness wouldn't be so big, such a big deal if it, A, wasn't the heartbeat of Jesus Christ, and we just want to see God and the Lord Jesus get their way. But two, if it wasn't so attacked, one of the things that lets you know that oneness is so important, unity among God's people as found in our union with Christ, is so important as it's been attacked. Now, John is believed to be written. The Gospel of John was believed to be written from Ephesus, right? Isn't it funny how in the New Testament, not only does John highlight... Now, John is writing after Jesus is gone. So John is writing strategically in light of his community as well. And he's writing about oneness. So you would probably think that they were having issues of oneness even there. It's amazing that in the New Testament, that's exactly what you see. You see Jesus Christ saying, wait... The Acts comes, the book of Acts, which follows right after John, right? The Bible says that they had to wait for the Spirit. The Spirit comes to usher in this time where the Spirit baptizes everybody into one, right? Okay? Immediately you see them beginning to live it out. Where it says they began to sell all they had. They had all things in common. Look, look at the Spirit causing The obligation to flow out of the objective reality. God, divine, uh, the, the divine responsibility comes in and makes us one, objectively speaking. Then you see us responding to that by doing it. You flip over a couple of chapters later and Hebrew and Hellenist, uh, widows are now clashing and God has to stop strife between People, because that's what it, that's a, an infraction or it's messing up the oneness. So God begins to bridge that gap through deacons. Next thing you know, God what? Moves the gospel out toward all the way to Cornelius in chapter 10. Peter, one of the patriarchs of the faith, has to say, Dag, now I know that Gentiles are supposed to be down with us and we're equal. Now, what did God do to reinforce that we're one? Everybody had the exact same experience with the Holy Spirit then. 
Back in those days, everybody spoke in tongues when Jesus Christ, uh, when, when the Spirit of God began to move to people who you would think were more distant from what God was doing. That was God saying, nah. I'm into oneness, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to even synchronize your experience when the Spirit comes so that you'll know nobody's second rate, we're all one. You keep going. The book of Romans, Paul begins to argue because there were still some people who were trying to say, man, Jews have a better chance with God than Gentiles. So Paul begins to say, yo, both Jews and Gentiles need justification by faith. You go, I mean, you just keep going. Corinthians, same thing. First chapter opens up with, man, I hear this quarrels among you. Is Christ divided? So he deals with issues of you're messing up the oneness. This is a critical doctrine. Galatians, Paul opposes Peter to his face because Peter was withdrawing from Gentile believers when the Jews came around. You're messing with the doctrine. Ephesus. The letter to the Ephesians, he starts off by talking about one of the solid, the most solid books on God crashing down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles and making peace between all those so that there's one body of Christ, even though there's all kinds of differences. You were messing with the doctrine. So I'm saying you hear Jesus praying it. Then the rest of the New Testament, we keep seeing the demand to live it out. Now, chapter 4 of Ephesians says this. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk, that's to live it out, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, oneness, eager to maintain the unity, there it is, of the spirit in the bond of peace, there it is. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Again, this idea of the theology of God calling us to be one with one another that starts just as an objective truth. God only has, he's only dealing with one people. Now, how we respond is we fight to walk in a manner worthy of it. We fight to make sure that we display it. Which is why that, this is canceling renegades. This is canceling, I do my thing, you do your thing. This is can't, now, this doesn't mean sameness. So we're not talking about, that's why you shouldn't have any denominations. And that's why you shouldn't, perhaps you shouldn't. But the idea is, that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is there being a group of people who understand it is the, the passion of Jesus Christ, his desire, prayed uh, in one of the most profound prayers, that he's destined us to be one in the Father, in him, and there was to basically be a reflection of God's oneness lived out in our lives. Lastly, we see something he's destined for us. Let's go back to John, verse 24. You all with me? I know it's hot. Verse 24 says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. When he opened his prayer, this section of the prayer, we saw that he has a devotion for us, even those of us who had not yet believed. We see he had a desire for us, and a design for us, to be one, one with each other, but find that oneness rooted in our oneness with him and the Father. First John says, we have fellowship, koinonia, partnership. We are together with Jesus Christ. Our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son. Now we see that he's got something destined for us. Again, hear a prayer. See this as a man praying about his affection for us. Not just us, but including us. Look what he says here. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Listen to a few verses. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to myself. Where I am, there you will be also. John fourteen three. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Then we, uh, Colossians 3, 3 to 4. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4:17. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. 1 Thessalonians 5:9-10. How important to you is it that Jesus just doesn't want to put you on a shelf of safety and then go off? You know, like sometimes in the superheroes, you know, they'll have to, like, rescue somebody, then put them on a ledge, I'll be back. And then they go back to the fight, and you just stuck on the ledge. Suppose they just left you there. Never came back. Went back to the crib, threw the cape off, and just like, I feel like I'm forgetting something. But anyway, and you just sitting on a ledge. But you saved, but you... The beauty of the Christian faith, and this is why we always hear us talk about not religion, but relationship. There are gods who just do something with you, and that's the end of the story. Like, you'll come back again. Um, Yeah, you'll be something else in the next life. Uh, Other religions, ah, you just go to the grave. That's it. Somebody else, ah, go and get some wives, some virgins, and have a ball. All kinds of... Listen to the one who's going to die. Not only die, but say, oh, and Father, I want him to be with me. Like, but here a man praying. He's praying as a human with passions and desires. Like his prayer goes in directions based on what's rocking him at the moment. 
He's purposeful. So you, Father, and I just pray that they'll, that they'll be one like us. I prayed it because, God, I want the world to know that you sent me. I, I, I gave them my glory, Father. And God, I just want them to be with me. I want them to be with me so that they can see my glory. What was this set on? I'm coming to a close anyway. This is my last point. Nah, 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 nah. (laughs) To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. The disciples saw a lot of banging stuff about the Lord Jesus. But they ain't seen nothing yet. It wasn't until later on, and I don't know if the scriptures gives us insight into, like, did the fullness of the glorified body, was that, or was it when they get, like, when they're clothed with the immortality? You know, uh, Pastor E was talking about how, uh, based out of Corona, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, God has to re-equip us with new uh, equipment to be able to handle the full beam of his radiance. You know, there won't be no more sun. He's just going to bling, his own bling, right? But he says here, I want them to see my glory. Now, you can imagine when a dude say, yo, I want, nah, Lord, I want them to see the glory, glory. Like he talked about, I gave him my glory. We said that, that often can, that can either be the, the path to glory, meaning the way of the cross and the power to be able to endure that. It also can mean some of the fruitfulness that, and the, 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 the identification with him and the, and the honor that comes with that. But now he's like, I want him to see that glory, glory. Like that glory that I had that you gave me because you love me. Now imagine, the way the Lord draped us, the Bible says he clothed us with majesty and honor, Psalm 8. He made man, like he, he loved us, he, he, he hooked us up. Jesus refers to a glory that the Father gave him out of a love for him. I don't know what that glory is like. But Satan before he fell is depicted as being glorious. We know that the glory of the sun dwarfs that. He says, God, I want him to be with me, and I want him to see the glory, glory. You know the glory you gave me before the foundation of the world uh, because you love me. Then he says this, verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now he appeals to God and calls him, O righteous Father. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm appealing to the righteousness of your character, which could be able to detect if there's anything unrighteous about what I'm praying. Anything. If this was a bugged out prayer, Because you're the righteous father, you would know and it would manifest. But I say, oh, righteous father, because I know I have every right to ask what I'm asking. I know this is in accordance with your will. Even though the world doesn't know you, I do. I know how to pray. Pastor E was talking about 
in his name, praying in his name, being according to his character. You know you're going to get what you ask. If Jeremiah says, Dad, can I stop playing for a moment and go up and read? I'm not going to be like, I can't believe you would ask me that. You better get out here and play and stop reading. (laughs) Dad, I've been eating a lot of candy. Can I stop and eat fruits and vegetables? What are you, crazy? Fruits and vegetables are nasty. He says, oh, righteous father, the world doesn't know you. I know you. And these know that you have sent me, referring back to the 11. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It's all about being in him and him being in you. And so as we close today, I want you to reflect on a man. Yeah, he's God. But this is the prayer of a man who had passions, who had bent, who had things on his mind during prayer meetings. Now, what was on his mind? Not these only, the 11, but all who would come to believe. That's you and I. He had a devotion to us. But he had a desire for us to model the oneness that's in him among each other and in front of a world so that the world would know that the Lord Jesus Christ truly is unique as the Father's sent one, the one who paid for sin. And he's had a destiny for us. That destiny is not a place. That destiny is a purpose, a person. I want them to be with me, and I want them to see my glory, the glory I had before the foundation of the world, the glory you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. A lot of theology in here, but I'm praying that today, if there's any encouragement you got, it's because whatever you're going through, remember, who condemns Christ doing anything for you before you while you were enemies, it's supposed to comfort those who feel condemned. It's supposed to comfort those who feel like God may not love them. It's always written to say, before this, before anything, even salvation was determined before you did anything to deserve it or undeserve it. And so take comfort today. Let us be one. Let us live it out. Let us not be churchgoers. Let us not just do our own stuff out there. Let us rally and live it out in such a way that people start bugging off of how many of us can get together and how many of us can walk together out of our commitment to reflecting the oneness that he prayed about here. Let him have his way. Let that oneness result in God the Father and God the Son living out there their desires through our community. Let it be that kind of oneness because that's the kind of oneness that's like the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father. And remember, you're destined to be with Him. Take, take, uh, take courage and be encouraged off of this. If you're not saved in here, it's hard to convince people to start with the, that <laughs> because all of this was limited to those who will believe.